everyone, welcome to the Fitness Devil. Andrew Coates here. Dean is sitting here quietly as we get ready to talk to John Romanello. It's episode number 78, and we're going to get John to have a pretty in-depth conversation about his own personal mental health and mental health uh, discussions in the industry. We also get into having knowledge and interests outside of fitness, the value of that, the value to your career, talking to your clients. John's work with uh, the Wellspring Society, his business and writing coaching, uh, and how he's transitioned towards that and not so heavily involved in fitness directly anymore, uh, and how coaches are looking to grow beyond the fitness space while some still immerse themselves within it. It's a great episode. Uh, check it out. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. So when uh, Dean and I started this podcast, I had a number of aspirational guests in mind um, and people I didn't necessarily expect to get on here. You get pretty improbable with that list and of course Arnold Schwarzenegger being kind of the king of the castle there. But we did get one of my guests who I didn't really think I'd ever probably be able to pull on here. So we did convince uh, John Romanello to spend an hour talking with us. Um, welcome, John. It's actually great to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, um, we, we usually skip over the long intro, uh, the origin stories. Anyone who actually wants to learn more about John who doesn't already know a lot, he's done dozens and dozens of podcasts. You can before. find that stuff. It's actually really, there's some really great story there. So uh, I think, uh, was it the Gap you used to work in? And it was a, a yeah, clo clothing the, yeah, story. The, yeah. Uh, the original, yeah, I guess the my entry point. This is so interesting. Most people are, or the you know the the origin story is sort of the entry point into the career. But my my real entry point into uh, fitness as a as a practice and the way it came into my life, there's some some tracks that were laid early on in terms of having done weight training for sports and. You know, I had, a, I had a great high school football and wrestling coach who introduced me to weight training, but it, it, it was more something that I did to support uh, the activity of, of sport and to just, you know, be part of a team in a, in a weight room. And then when I was in college, it fell by the wayside. But then the, the story that you'd mentioned, I was at the time working at The Gap, which is one of the most miserable things you can do as a young man, <laughs> and a... A, a woman called and said that she needed uh, like 27 or 30 white polo shirts in all these various sizes. And I was – at the time, I, I transferred home from school because my mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was away from my friends at school but also the friends that I had grown up with were at their various colleges. And so it was fairly isolating. And I was not having a good time in my life. I was struggling with depression again for uh, – although at the time I had only recently been diagnosed and my depressive episodes were not crazy and we'll, we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But of all places, I'm working at The Gap and not happy about it. And now this woman calls and needs 30 white polo shirts <laughs> and I got to go down to the stock room and find 30 white polo shirts in these very specific sizes and have them ready for her when she arrives. Collecting those was, you know, like a – just like – probably the pinnacle of, of just anger for absolutely no reason. And so I like, you know, storming up to the main floor with, you know, in, in four or five trips carrying these polo shirts neatly folded on the side. And when she arrived, 
she reminded me of my mother, short Italian woman, and we began talking. My anger dissipated as it normally does whenever I get to speak to somebody cool. And this woman's name was Marie. And at some point, I asked her, why on earth would you need 30 white polo shirts? Um, and her response was that her husband was opening a gym and they would be the uniforms for the staff. And I asked, uh, you know, oh, that's really cool. Like, where? And it turned out this gym was about five minutes from my house. And just a few days earlier, I had been contemplating joining a gym. I, at this point in my life, was 19, just about 20, and chubby. I was a chubby kid. I had been a chubby kid pretty, you know, pretty much throughout my life, never fat, just a thick kid. When I was playing sports, I was uh, thicker, more muscular, and a little leaner just by virtue of that. But at this point in college, I had not, you know, my, my activity had dropped to nearly zero, plus my mom was cancer, plus I'm doing pretty much nothing. So I was, I was in the softest condition of my life and had been considering joining a gym. I really, I wanted the person I saw in the mirror to be reflective of my internal sort of uh, perception of self. And now this is an opportunity. So this woman comes in, she lets me know that this very convenient place is right near me. And that was very much uh, the call to adventure in the Campbellian sense. And so a few days later, I went into this gym and joined. The owner there, her husband, a guy named Alvin Batista, became my first real mentor. And over the course of time there, it very, I, you know, it, it turned out that I have really good fitness, bodybuilding genetics, great attachments. As it turns out, is if I don't eat like an idiot, I, I'm not chubby. It's pretty, I just get jacked. Great um, I went through a very right? rapid transformation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it turns out like you just got to, you just got to like do it and it works. Crazy. And yeah, it's nuts if only. So from there, uh, I went through a very, very quick transformation. I think I joined that gym in maybe April having like a 35 inch waist. And then by July 4th, um, I had a 28 inch waist. So just, uh, really, really rapid transformation went from chubby to shredded. And then it, that put all sorts of weird head trash in my head. And I, you know, I want to like, just like you're constantly afraid of regaining weight and all that, that, you know, fitness competitor shit that you go through where once you've been truly lean, everything else kind of feels fat. And so I was terrified of gaining weight. And eventually with Alvin's help, I just was like, all right, let me actually try to get Jackson. Instead of walking around at 160, another six months later, I was 193 and even leaner. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to do some bodybuilding shit. And that's kind of how it all started. And that, that eventually I, I obviously wound up wearing one of those polo shirts I was say, hey. and yeah, that is, that's sort of the button on that story. I wound up working at the gym first at the front desk. Alvin paid for my first personal training certification, and it sort of went from there. And I worked at that gym on and off whenever I wasn't away at school, although I did, I did a year at home, so I had a full, full year there. Started my personal training business there, and then when I graduated college, uh, it, it was already sort of in place, the personal training business, and I decided – let me procrastinate on real life and going to grad school by continuing to do this fitness thing. And then one year turned into two. And then eventually I got to the point where I was making six figures. And, uh, I, I think that when I was 24, I was doing like 150 K a year. And so 
this was just so much more than anyone I knew who was using their degree and certainly more than anyone who was spending more and more money to get a degree. And so I decided, let me, let me just keep doing this. And it, it just kept growing and I had been writing for T nation. And then, um, yeah, I mean, now we're in 2019. So it's been about 15 years and I still don't have a real job. So at some point we'll, we'll see how that story ends, but that's how it began. Well, you do have, um, obviously now Roman Fitness Systems is its own thing that you recently passed off to uh, an associate of yours as you're going to focus more on your writing and your business coaching work through the Wellspring Society. And I mean, I have a copy of your Engineering the Alpha book, which uh, you co-authored with Adam Bornstein. I've, he signed my copy, by the way, so I'll have to figure <laughs> next time I know you're in the same place as I am. Uh, I'll be happy to add my signature, yeah. Uh, Brianna Thoreau is a friend, so I remember she invited me down this summer and she said that there was a party at your house but obviously i couldn't just jump to new york for the weekend well you need that well, that's your first mistake anytime you have the opportunity to jump to new york do it but especially yeah. if it's because there's a party at my house those parties yeah. are and I'm, they're I, a lot of fun i was uh, joey, percy, joey percy is another friend i met along the way he's done our podcast so um you know if, if joey had been there too I'd be like, shit man like that would have been worth I it i would just i could just picture you show up we, andrew wears he's actually wearing sleeves which is like an anomaly he'd show up with no sleeves and like a copy of your book <laughs> <It's good. laughs> can i come to the party i just want a signature and i'll leave well, <laughs> if, if i ever find out that you've got eric bach there and joey and brianna and mark fisher who's amazing um, then i'd be we, like fuck it i've got we there. can arrange that that will probably be happening sometime in the spring for sure well as long that as much it's not, I can tell you. what we've got uh, i've got uh, mid-april in spokane for a big event and then if i've committed to the kansas city fitness well, summit in early may fuck it if that happens i'm there because that's a that's a group of great people but it's a good party the reason why we really pulled you on here was to set up the party to set up the party to get you to share about uh mental health sure. can, any, any aspect of your own personal experience and it seems to be something that's much, much more discussed in our industry. And I feel like that's an um, overwhelming positive. I wanted to see what your thoughts were on the state of that. And perhaps even if some of it is being misused a little bit for kind of personal gain as opposed to, you know, the authentic goal to help everybody. So the floor is yours. Sure. Um, wow. That is, it's, where do I even begin to take that? <sighs> so to create context for those listeners who might not be familiar with my story or my struggle. I was diagnosed with depression when I was 17 years old, and I did not tell anyone about that until I was 34. And I'm now 36. I'll be 37 next month. And um, so the only for 17 years, literally half my life to that point, the only people who knew that I suffered from depression were my therapist, myself, uh, my mother, and one of my friends. And I, I had a lot of shame around this for reasons that now seem silly, having done so much of the work, the idea of disappointing people, of having responsibilities to people in terms of showing up for them, of consistently um, just my, my self-image being based on uh, resiliency and reliability and so that that was, I think, uh, a, a, a period of years where I consistently reinforced this belief that people would be judging me by never actually sitting down and having the conversation with anyone, but hinting around things and hoping that they would 
put the pieces together or pick up the threads. And there were a lot of moments where I would sort of skirt around depression or mention it. And the reaction would reinforce the idea that I was not a person who should talk about this because people would they would be aghast and, and agog. There was, oh, there's no way, you know, you're so extroverted and funny and, and uh, there's no possible way this person suffers from depression. Now, I think that, you know, that is very much a, a, a early 2000s sort of reaction, whereas now mental health has been discussed more openly. And we see that many of the people who do suffer from mental health to the point where it, it may wind up being life-threatening are extroverted and funny and there are many comedians talk about it and so within the context of a 2009 understanding social understanding of mental health my earlier comments might have been taken more seriously but at the time it was almost sort of poo-pooed and to the point where i immediately retracted like a turtle into a shell and decided this is not something that i'm gonna talk about and it came to a head in uh, 2000, late, late, late 2014. So for me, depression is not an experience of constancy. I have periods of depression. And from the time I was 17 to the time I was 34, they would happen randomly, but they were infrequent. Uh, you know, I was one when I was around 17 and then another when I was when I was 20, uh, probably immediately before getting into the fitness stuff, and I really credit the fitness with with pulling me out of it. Another when I was 23, and then something when I was like 25 uh, or 26. And the the thing here is that all of those were, firstly, kind of minor, but they were also concomitant with uh, something happening in my life that that contributed. And so there can be overlap between situational depression, which anyone can experience, and a more clinical depression, uh, which is, you know, more reserved for those of us who, who actually have diagnosable mental illness. And the problem is if you are someone who suffers from mental illness and you are experiencing situational depression or something external kicks off a period of depression, it's very easy to sort of push it away and rationalize it. <clears throat> you know, when I was 20, my mother had just been diagnosed with cancer. I'm transferring home from school. It makes sense that I'm depressed. When I was 23, I'd gone through a really bad breakup and my first like real true heartbreak. And you know, it, it, it all these things were just like, all right, it is a reaction <clears throat> to my life. But then when I was, uh, in my thirties, I wound up being just struck with this, this depressive episode. And it, in, in retrospect, I mean, there are a lot of things that were, were factors in that, you know, I had moved across the country, gotten married, become a stepfather. Uh, I had, I had gone through this process of writing this book and, uh, released it. And then, you know, there's that feeling of being bereft when you're no longer working on that. So actually, you know, truthfully, I guess it was around 32 at this point. And to 2014, I mean, I'm struggling hard with depression and then it all came to a head when, I had a suicide attempt uh, in uh, it, was, it was in December of, of 2014. And then <clears throat> from there, I just kind of like cleaned myself up and um, walked away and, and still didn't really like tell anyone about it. And then in an effort 
to explain this to the people in my life rather than have that conversation a number of times, I wound up writing something. And this piece that I began writing, which I, in my head as I was writing it, framed almost as a letter to my friends, wound up turning into this extremely long opus of my experience, my life, my, or at that point, half my life experience of depression and suicidal ideation and, and a number of suicide attempts. And then I published it. I just put it on my site and my sole site at that point was Roman Fitness Systems. And it is one of the most impactful things I've ever written for me personally, because you can't unring that bell. Now it was out. But also it, it really um, minorly altered the trajectory of my career. It, it's not as though I'm like professionally helping people with mental health, but it did put me into the conversation as both a sufferer of and a mental health advocate. And it's, it's one of the things that has been more well received than just about anything. It's also the thing out. It's the thing that, that creates a lot of outroads to places beyond fitness, right? It's, it's the thing where there are many people who have been reading my site for years and, uh, exposing their friends to my work never made sense because those individuals might not be interested in intermittent fasting or macro counting, but here's this piece on depression that can help people. And to this day, it's the thing that I, I hear about probably most outside of, of alpha. And it also, it put me into a number of different conversations. And, and when you are writing exclusively about fitness, only other meatheads are ever going to sort of have an understanding of where the, the writing stands relative to the rest of the industry and writing then about depression and then mental health and then really kind of going in and writing about pretty much whatever I wanted. Because once you, once you start talking about all the time, just try to kill yourself, you sort of lose the fear of whatever. And so I started writing more and more other shit and that really just kept, uh, exposing other people to the writing itself. And that obviously has had a pretty profound impact. The piece itself I think is, is powerful. I've, uh, I've gone back and made one edit as I moved it over from Roman fitness systems to johnromanello.com. But when I was writing it, I think I was just trying to talk about my experience. And, and I did that. I didn't have any goals in mind other than to make people aware of mental health and who suffers and et cetera. If there was some underlying hope, um, I think that if you had asked me at the time, I, I would have wanted to say that I, I wanted something for people who, who suffer from mental health to feel less alone. And it did that. But the, the biggest impact it had, and this is the thing for which I'm most thankful, is it seems to have given people who do not suffer from mental illness a, an inside look into what depression and suicidal ideation are like. And the emails I get are, I do get many from people who suffer themselves and you know a lot of it is just supportive emails or uh, I've gone through this too or thank you for making me feel less alone. But the vast preponderance of the, the emails are from people who themselves do not suffer and instead are telling me, I feel like I understand my brother finally or my grandfather commit suicide. 13 years ago, and I, I finally am understanding in his, you know, of what his state must have been like, and 
there's a lot of, of good that it's done in helping people forgive the people in their, in, in their lives who have, who have taken their, taken their lives and, and, or done self-harm. There's this perception that suicide is incredibly selfish and I'm not, you know, super interested in arguing that because it's like, you know, you can't, it, it's that, that's a whole other thing, but we can, we can have that conversation. I just, I don't really, I don't really jump into that with people who take that stance, but, um, for me to, to be able to facilitate the conversation in such a way that people who don't suffer from mental health are like, Oh, okay, I get it. That is, that's really, that's really gratifying and helpful as to the state of the industry in our discussion of mental health. I do think that there is a lot of, uh, a lot of good that's being done. I think bringing more and more awareness to it is very helpful. I, uh, and then there's all sorts of ways that it manifests, right? It's some people experience anxiety, some people experience depression, some people have both, some people have, uh, you know, bipolar disorder or dissociative identity disorder. And there's no, there's no normal. There's no, you know, there's, there's typical that we can you know, use the word typical because it, it's the range of averages for how the, I guess the, the majority of human beings experience their own brain. But, uh, there's, it, it's really this very, very serious and very common affliction that so many people need to deal with. And I, and I'm very happy that more and more people are speaking out about it, both as sufferers and as advocates. And, um, as to the question about whether or not there's discussion of it for their own gain, I, I would, I need to look at some specific examples. I, I tend to believe that people for the most part are are pretty good and nobody wants anyone else to kill themselves. And there's a discussion of that. So it's really, um, there's no, there's no downside to having the conversations, even if your motivation is somewhat, uh, I, I guess, self-serving because it still, it still furthers the conversation. And every single time we talk about something, it normalizes the act of talking about it, which is the first step to normalizing and destigmatizing the thing itself. And as an individual who is a sufferer, normalizing that conversation in general helps you feel more comfortable having the conversation of your own illness in your own life. And when you start to do this, particularly when you are someone who has tried to take your own life, particularly when you are a person who's um, – whose mental illness or, or depression or anxiety uh, is in some way tied to trauma, some, some traumatic incident in, uh, in your life, whether in your childhood or, or somewhere else, having those conversations is inexperienced and pure terror. You know, it's, it's, it's like the, the story, the incidents, all of the things surrounding it are, razor sharp pieces of shattered glass. And every time you have that conversation, you're reaching into a dark bag to pull one out and hoping that you don't come back with a lacerated hand and knowing that you'll at the very least get cut. But the more you do it, those pieces get worn down and the edges get softer. And that is what allows people over time to take them out and examine them and really look at them 
because it's it's only once you stop living in fear of cutting your hand, it's only once the hand stops getting cut that you can at will pick up one of these things, one of these traumatic incidents, one of your, you know, your own your own assessment of self as someone who suffers from mental illness and examine it objectively and from there begin the process of just getting okay with it. Um, are you pro I'm guessing you probably read Brene Brown's work. I just kind of binged four of her books recently and I think she's one of the best resources that if anyone is interested in, uh, there's great stuff there. And, and there's a whole bunch of takeaways I found. Especially for men, I think it's it's a societal stigma that we can't talk openly about these sort of things, that we're supposed to be tough and stoic. Uh, people like to throw around the term toxic masculinity, and that tends to provoke a lot of different reactions. Um, some people feel that that term is being used to encompass all men and masculinity, where all other people, uh, in its original form, it, it is meant to characterize the kind of the worst, most negative behaviors. But that's something that... You know, as a man, it's got to be a little bit more difficult. What do you what do you feel about that? Like the dichotomy between like women and their ability to talk about this stuff versus men being able to talk about it. I don't know. I think everyone has their own like individual um, experiences of uh, either encouragement to to talk or not talk, and we all have the the social pressures and burdens. I think that uh, by and large women have a set of restrictions and expectations that is so difficult. You know, there's so many like tiny little razor sharp lines that you need to walk. The expectation, you know, the, the uh, understanding that, or the, that women are more quote allowed to talk about their feelings, I, I think might be more true in media than it is in, in real life because so many of the women I know uh, who are sufferers of mental health, they're not talking about their deep feelings. They don't have more freedom to talk about what's going on in their internal world in that, in that maelstrom of emotionality. They're just sort of encouraged to talk about surface level feelings like I am sad today or, um, you know, I am in a fight with the, it's, it, you know, the sort of the manifested Hard, hard, uh, hardship that that happens in a very superficial way. Uh, I think that the stigma of mental health sits just as heavily for women as it does for men. It's just in a, in a different way. I think also that women are under constant attack from uh, certainly you know that like the this is the, the the societally internalized misogyny that is you know, our current patriarchy. And, and there is the all, because there's already this expectation that women are weak or that women have a greater set of emotional needs, which makes them less suited for positions of power or responsibility or uh, reliability. And therefore I think it, it might actually in many cases be more difficult on an individual level to speak about mental illness because they're already being judged and under such scrutiny that, and again, this I can I can't speak as a woman, but I can speak as a sufferer with mental illness. The last thing I want to do in that case is put another like large item into the column of reasons this person is not suitable or reasons this person is wrong or broken or weak or whatever. So I think that we've all got our our burdens and the challenges of of uh, navigating society 
with mental health, both in terms of how it affects us personally and um, the perception, the outside perception. That kind of leads me to something that I was thinking about when you're telling your story. And I just kind of label it as you're like a survivor, um, just because there is a lot of people in the public that have committed suicide. And, and that ends up being the reason why people talk about it. But as a survivor, do you feel like you have a responsibility or a burden to speak out about it now that you rang the bell now that you have that article like is that something that you like does that make sense like you feel responsible to do it to help prevent other people from trying to take their lives sure um yeah i feel a great responsibility but i don't it does not feel burdensome in any way i i really look at it as an opportunity and you know when when you sort of I don't know, when, when we talk about responsibility or duty, there does, you know, it, it, it feels like they're like, we're doing something that we don't want to do. It, it, yeah. it feels like there's not a willingness. Whereas when we talk about, um, you know, altruism and just doing things to serve other people, it, it opens the sort of philosophical vortex that there is no real true altruism and everything we're doing for other people. We're also doing for ourselves. I, like really look at things in the most pragmatic way possible. And I tend to look at ROI for me having these conversations, um, makes me better. It, every single time I do this, I am taking those glass shards out and dulling them so that I can live more effectively. The, the service that I provide to everyone who listens to this conversation, uh, I do have a responsibility to do that. I do consider it a duty, but it is not, I don't feel resistance to it. There are not moments where I'm like, ah, I don't want to have another, I am sure there's like moments where on some level, like, I don't want to fucking talk about my depression. Let's talk about something cool, but (laughs) there's, there's not, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, uh, hurt me in any way. I think that for me, certainly, having the conversation is all upside and no downside. The only potential downside that I could see, you know, from like a metapsychological perspective is that the consistency with which I am talking about myself as a person with mental health could potentially being re-ingraining my self-definition of myself as a person Mm. with mental health. But I don't think that's bad. You know, I, I just, I don't, I don't, because it's true. Um, it's, you know, there are, there are, the repeated conversations we have with ourselves, but uh, you know, there's, there's certain things I'd like to get over in terms of my, uh, uh, my own self-assessment. I'm not looking to detach from the idea of myself as a person who suffers from mental health uh, or mental illness, because it doesn't, it's not inhibitive to me in any way. If I were feeling, okay, well, because I suffer from mental illness, there's all these things I can never do or never be. I don't feel that way. I just feel that there's a, a practical element that needs to be navigated where I have probably nine and a half months spread throughout a year to do most of what I need to do. And then there are periods throughout the year totaling maybe two and a half months where I'm a lot less capable of doing those things. And that just needs to be navigated. I also don't have uh, a – yeah, but, but there, there are pieces like you know that I would like to – um, dissociate. You know, I, I really cleave tightly to this tortured genius narrative where <laughs> depression is where the gift comes from, and whether that's true or not, I don't know. I, you know, I, uh, it, it could also just be my ego's way of reconciling. Like this is a thing that happens, and uh, I need to find meaning for it. You know, as Tony Robbins says, we're all meaning makers. End of the day, though, I tend to 
if, if I get stuck on any of this, I like to just look at things in reverse and start with the result. There's no real downside to, to talking about it. And it's all upside, I think. Great. Well, you just said something there and I want to grab onto it so we could segue because this has been an awesome conversation. You know, you said talk about something cool, something that I've heard you talk about on a podcast. And I believe it was the, oh shit, I can't remember the name of the podcast. I love it. It's Dave Thomas and this other guy in San Diego. And I think you, you cornered them about Harry Potter and what they thought about <laughs> Harry Potter. And, and his, his response was sort of ambivalent or didn't think it was important. And you kind of blew them up for saying that Harry Potter was one of the most important things uh, both culturally, societally, the conversation. You mentioned Campbell earlier, so that's Joseph Campbell for anyone who's not familiar with the hero's journey. And if you've ever watched uh, or read Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Hunger Games, uh, Luke Skywalker, Star Wars Adventure, these are all classic uh, hero's journey stuff. So the question embedded here is, uh, you know, you've talked a lot about having knowledge and interests outside of fitness being important to a career in fitness. And yeah. I wanted to get you to sort of elaborate on that, both the value to yourself and to your client interactions? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think that, you know, the value to yourself is pretty obvious. Like if the only thing you do is <laughs> fitness shit, then you're going to be a boring and unhappy person because there comes a point at which, you know, it's, it's not giving you what you want it to. Um, whether that is, you know, there's, there's a, a plateau or the results stop being as linear or you just kind of, you know, evolve emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and to make a, to have a recognition that there is, <clears throat> I think, th there's a, you know, like a, an end point at which drawing value from the way you look or the way you physically perform uh, can be helpful. And, and I do think, you know, obviously I think health is very important and being fit is very important. And, you know, as a, uh, uh, yeah, I certainly don't have any issue with people wanting to look good. I think aesthetics are great. I'm I'm a big fan of uh, the the driving force of of low grade um, vanity, but that can't be the only thing you do, right? If like fitness is your job and and it's your passion, and then it's also your only set of interests, you're in trouble because you are going to be a one dimensional person. And when you do that, I think that it does a real disservice to the industry because what happens there is you have all these people who, because they don't have other interests, are so deeply attached to, and, and, and they're people who don't have a lot of interest, but they do have time. And so they're constantly reading research, they're diving in, and they're reinforcing the strength of their existing opinions and paradigms. And they become so emotionally and psychologically attached to these things that, uh, they, they wind up, it's, it's the classic look of the industry tearing itself apart in terms of its argument over nonsense, because when people pick a, a fitness hill on which they're willing to die, whether it's keto or paleo or whatever else it is. And this is not an exaggeration. It is nearly every time finding a reason to disregard the fact that you agree with 95% of shit, the, opposition is saying and focus on the 5% on which you disagree. And that does a disservice to our customers or our readers because you're focusing so much on this 5% and it's a thing to write about and blah, 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 blah. And, and so it becomes the loudest 
sort of uh, part of the conversation. And if you are a person who isn't well-versed in that 95%, you just are gravitating toward the, the loud part of the conversation, which is keto versus whatever. And now you have people who are not well-educated, who it is your job to help them. And because you don't have interests outside of fitness and you are now like reinforcing your, you know, your own need to validate your position and talking about it constantly, you are doing a disservice to the people you want to help because it creates their, or, or it fosters their likelihood of focusing on the 5% of stuff. And then you know, these same coaches are just like, well, you know, are you eating? Well? Are you dragging macros? Are you getting enough sleep? And then it's like, then they, they, they take this like incredulous position of, well, did you get the basics covered? Like they can't possibly believe that this person that, you know, that is their potential client is focusing only on the 5% when it's, it's clearly an, a reaction to prioritizing that conversation. So that's an issue. Um, so certainly that is one of the larger issues. And but I do think it, it it is. I think in large part due to people not having a lot of interests outside of their fitness or not being willing to talk about them. And in terms of doing it for for your own clients, like talking about the stuff that you enjoy. Here's the thing: people, what people seem to be doing. And this is like this is very much like we're in the age of the influencer and the and the guru. When people pick one of those hills to die on, and they pick one of those you know those five percent that they're going to constantly talk about, whether it's it's keto or fasting or whatever, uh, they are doing it partially because there is all this uh, branding language out there that says they sh this is what you should focus on: be the keto guy, be the you know and that's fine, but if if the, the consistency with which you have to talk about a topic is your attempt to stand out and to brand yourself and put yourself into a particular camp, and that is your branding strategy, it can work to a point. But the way that I, and we'll go back to the Wellspring Society at some point, my my business coaching mastermind, and the way I teach branding is you can you can actually do that same thing without damaging the rest of the industry, without confusing people, if you just talk about the other shit about which you're passionate. <clears throat> you don't have to be special and singular and um, <clears throat> uh, stand, you, you, know, you don't have to stand out from your contemporaries because you have a stronger opinion about a, you know, about a small, and whether it's a small thing or you know, it's an entire sort of conceptual understanding of fitness, you don't have to use that to stand out from your contemporaries. That doesn't have to be the flag you wave around, the flag you wave around can just be a big banner with your fucking face on it. And if you talk about the things that about which you are passionate and about which you care and about which you know a lot and these interests outside of that, people will gravitate toward you for those. <clears throat> and then you can be the kind of coach who works with people who are interested in keto, who like doing CrossFit or who like or who are vegans and you can brand yourself as yourself. And that is one of the things that I teach. And it's so, it's so very, very interesting that we're having this conversation now because just this morning. And I, I do not, like, I really don't do any more fitness coaching. We're running Roman fitness systems. We have a great group of coaches, but just this morning, somebody tagged me in their Instagram stories and was talking about something that I, I started saying in 2010 and to this day is 
constantly quoted without attribution, and it's, it's people don't buy coaching, they buy coaches. And the reason <clears throat> that this person brought this up is he was affirming that and validating that and said that when he was my fitness coaching client, the reason he signed up with me was because we have the same favorite band, brand new. And <laughs> right. you know, so like literally said that, I will share it on my story today. And so his, the reason that he chose me as his coach when he could have chosen anyone else was because we listened to the same 2003 indie emo CD on repeat 13 years later. And that is really telling. So by talking about Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and brand new and Hemingway and, you know, everything from comic books to anal sex to billions <laughs> to the stuff that I like and I'm willing to talk about, my brand is entirely me. And that has positives and negatives. Like the, the, the semi downside is that like repositioning Roman fitness systems as a brand that can function without me is that's a little more challenging. But making any transition I want from fitness to writing to, to business to, to writing is immediate and automatic and easy. And, and so I, I think that having interest outside of fitness not only makes you a more interesting and three-dimensional person and is necessary for a life well-lived and not to be crazy, uh, the discussion of those things within the context of your social media and your newsletter and everything else is better for the industry and better for you as an individual and better for your business and your brand. Do you think I was going to talk, I was going to talk about even how this parallels not talking about mental illness is that why do you think people don't want to talk about themselves? Cause like there is a stigma to telling people that they like anal sex and comic books and, and whatever. Right. Why do you think that people stray away from marketing themselves or, or even branding themselves for who they are? I don't know, man. Why do people do anything? Um, <laughs> I think that you know people carry a lot of weird expectation about, or, or a lot of weird. Um, yeah, I think I think they're afraid of of not meeting the expectations of others. In particular, in the fitness industry, most of what I see is that everyone early on is so concerned about getting validation from their peers and their contemporaries who are above them. And there's very much this idea of if I talk about X, will this coach I look up to see my work and will he still respect me if I'm talking about, you know, butt sex? I, I don't know, man. Like, but who gives a shit? I remember once having a conversation in the digital marketing space and, um, uh, this person was selling a, um, uh, I guess it was like a, a, a fitness product that like straddled the dating world. And I mentioned to them, um, like another friend of mine is selling a dating product and he's buying ads on porn sites and he's like absolutely crushing it. And this person's, this person's response was, ugh, but like, are those really the customers you want? I was like, I, what? Why? Like that, they're cut. That customer is fucking everybody. It's like anyone who watches porn, which is, as it turns out, quite a lot of people. And it was interesting. And I, you know, then had a conversation where I asked, like, do you watch porn? And he said, yes. And then we 
you know, I like, I, I went full Socratic with him and led him down this intentional rabbit hole where I started asking about his porn preferences. And, <laughs> you know, we got to the point where this is a guy who's willing to admit he watches a lot of gangbangs. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, so, but you have somehow, even though you belong in this camp of people, you have some sort of socialized judgment about what it means to watch pornography, to consume it to the extent that you are willing to like, like sequester those individuals from potentially being your customer base because of the, something they do 30 minutes a day or 20 minutes a couple of times a week as opposed to like who they are as people. You're in, and that's this crazy socialized thing that we have. So I think that we're all we've got all of these value judgments on these things, including for ourselves, and people are afraid to stand up and be judged for who they are because if you consider yourself to be a collection of your experiences and your memories and your opinions and your views and your interests and people start to, and you put that out there and people start to reject those things, then they are rejecting you. And most people don't have the resilience to just be okay with some people rejecting them. And because it is hard and it's a challenge, which is why I recommend like start slowly. Don't jump in to just being like, hey guys, yeah, like um, uh, I'm polyamorous and sexually fluid, and at any given point here in New York City, I'm having like MDMA fueled orgies. Like, <laughs> don't start like, with that one. Is that's, that's the main point? Like, yeah, like, <laughs> get there slowly. You're just like, hey guys, I'm really into Dungeons and Dragons, and then ten years later, you're just like, yeah, like if you want to call me daddy, that's cool. And like, it, it took a decade, but we're here. We just had uh, Yvette Don Tremont, the science babe, on our podcast recently. And she's amazing. So, of course, she'd be loving this conversation because she also has a podcast, Two Girls, One Mike, that they review uh, porn. So they'd have a blast with this. Uh, one of the things I was thinking that I was going to have some fun, we got sidetracked. Uh, <coughs> we always sneak Dean Somerset in here as a, as a joke, but I was going to use him as an example of like with his uh, passion for wrestling. The guy just is a huge wrestling fan. And he handles the 95% conversation so incredibly well. He's one of the people who has probably influenced me the most in my career. It also helped that we worked for the same company for a very long time. And I got a lot of his free courses and education within there. So that helps. But he's also known as a guy who's a specialist when it comes to uh, hips and shoulders and a lot of injury rehab stuff. But at the same time, I bet you he has clients who, oh, the fuck, they're into wrestling. They found him because of that. Yeah. So. Absolutely. I mean, there are tons of, you know, like if you really, really like wrestling and you want to talk about wrestling, then of course you'd hire that coach. And the thing about Dean being a specialist with like the, the, the hip stuff is like, there's, again, there's no downside. It's, okay. it's not like Dean, you know, if you, if you read Dean's work and you have an understanding that he is a great coach and programmer and like, he's not going to make you do exercises for hip rehab if you don't have hip issues. He's, but he is probably going to program in some stuff that will prevent you from developing hip issues while talking about wrestling. And why would you not want that? Exactly. So, yeah, I, I Fuck, I want to just talk about Dungeons and Dragons now. Um, but we, we should move on to talking about some of the stuff you have going on. And, and we had Jordan Side on here, but he, he has his coffee company. Jordan Piercia has his copywriting book. And you've kind of just passed the torch on Roman fitness systems to focus on Wellspring. And this kind of leads into this idea of, could you kind of tell us about the process and your desire to grow beyond the fitness space and essentially why other fit pros kind of want to stay within this realm of fitness and kind of don't move on, move beyond. I mean, I guess I'll answer that question in reverse. I think that many, 
many fit pros don't want to move on because this is this is their level of expertise right and i also think it's a, a bit generational you have the people who have been training for a dozen years or more and they have all of this knowledge that they've accrued and there is something like very scary about the idea of stepping away from it and 12 years of learning and practice and experience all of that is no longer relevant and uh, you know, it's the same reason anyone doesn't want to retire. You know, when you start looking at at athletes, they spend their entire lives, their entire lives, cultivating like a very specific, a very a very particular, very specific, you know, muscularly specific, physically specific, context specific skill set. And then once they retire, they cannot use it at all. Like you know, uh, being, um, uh, you know, like like a world class middle linebacker and being able to direct your defense based on how the offense lines up, like that is that's not a usable skill anywhere else. You can you can take that and then if you are also telegenic, personable, and you also had a reasonably good career, you can then get into broadcasting. But most can't. Michael and so, Strahan? is that you where know, you're going with that, Michael Strahan? I, <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, how many Michael Strahans are there? Right. You know, I mean, many, many former football players wind up doing sports broadcasting. But, you know, Michael is the one who managed to make a full career at being a daytime talk show host. You know, like whatever Tom Brady does next is, you know, it is going to be based on the fact that he's Tom Brady. But like the skill set of being like the greatest quarterback of all time will stop being relevant. It'll only be relevant to the brand. And so I think that all of these fitness professionals who have spent so much time developing these skills, there is an attachment to both the skills themselves, the value that they get from using them and also the time spent accruing them because now it feels like a waste. And so, uh, you know, I, I have been very, very lucky that, and and I get that because, you know, the, the thing that I have spent the most time, uh, developing is my writing skill set. And if someone was like, well, now you don't get to do that anymore because you're taking this step, that would, like, it would absolutely disrupt my understanding of self. So transitioning from fitness, even though I spent decades cultivating or decade and a half cultivating knowledge, experience, skill, um, I get to look at it sort of objectively. And, and from a meta perspective, every single fitness article I wrote was making me a better writer, which is the thing about which I'm most passionate anyway. And a lot of people don't have that. The people that I see now, and now I also see the opposite side of the coin where there's a lot of very young fitness professionals coming in and people like myself and Craig Ballantyne and Bader's, or you know what, I'll go in order. Bader's Koulian, Craig Ballantyne and myself have created this path uh, of transitioning from fitness into business coaching, business mentorship. And so now I see a lot of young people mm-hmm. coming in. And not really like even have, you know, they're like, I'm going to do like two years in fitness and then I'll transition to business coaching. And like, you don't know enough about fitness to like master that. And you certainly like, if that's your plan, you better spend the next two years like like crushing business. And there are a few people who have done it really, really well. And I think it's amazing because they, they really do know what they're talking about and they've, they've really, um, you know, they help a lot of people. And one that I'll mention, uh, who was very special to me, I'm sorry, Eric Bach. I was going to take it. Oh yeah. Eric, I mean, Eric Bach is sort of like, I think a a good example of someone like myself or Craig Mm. who he still does both, Mm -hmm. but yeah, he has a great fitness. He knows a ton about fitness and is still doing that, but he's also like built a a really big Mm. business and can help people do that. 
the person that I was going to mention because she's part of that younger generation mm-hmm. is uh, Amanda Bucci, who is, you know, she is a, a world-class business coach and, you know, she has spoken at the Wellspring Society. She, you know, I, I've, I, she's just done such amazing things Like watching her in her business <clears throat> is, is really um, inspiring and profound. And she's helping so many more people than she ever could have helped as a fitness professional. <clears throat> and I don't think she would be at all offended to hear me say, I think she knows far more about building and running and scaling and, and uh, creating profitability in an online business than she did about like fitness. You know, she, she, especially if we consider the top people in the world, like, you know, like an Eric Cressy, you know, none of us are like, how many weren't, none of us are Eric. And, um, so that, that path has been laid out and there's so many people who are just like, all right, I'll do fitness for a while and then I'll, I'll do business. Uh, and then on the other side of that coin is the people you mentioned who are, who are still cleaving so tightly to it because it is part of their identification narrative. And so I don't – my goal isn't to push people one way or the other. <clears throat> I can only speak from my my personal perspective, which is that I think that for me these transitions are not as they're, – they're not as like practical or pragmatic as I uh, you know, perhaps – should make them. Uh, they're all very philosophical and spiritual, and they're based on self fulfillment. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, hydrate here. <laughs> with fitness, you know, I I realized like after the book with Alpha, that came out in 2013, and then I was still like very very fitness for another two years. And then I like, but I really stopped being happy. And I, you know, I go back to Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a great friend of mine. And he talks about how, when it was like 2009 or so, like he stopped being even 1% happy. You know, he had a 1% drop in happiness building his, uh, wine store, wine library TV. And then he made a transition into the wine blog. And then eventually he transitioned into everything else. For me, I just noticed that I, I was not as satisfied doing the fitness stuff. And what it really came down to is I had said what I needed to say and it got to the point where I wasn't, you know, I was just like, I was just doing it and, and I was good at it. And that it's hard to detach from that. It's hard to stop doing something you're great at, you know, because you're, you're still like good at it and you've got the, you know, the, these psychological, um, patterns or, you know, movement patterns are ingrained, but I then I really wanted to step away from fitness in a way, not because I had said what I needed to say um, or because I was less happy. I felt I had an ethical responsibility to do so philosophically, because if I've said what I had to say by the end of 2013 and I'm still saying it in 2015, that means I have nothing new to say. I'm not reading research, but I'm also aware of who I am, of what my name means, of the books, of the of the blog, and that I have, I take up a certain amount of space in the industry. And if I kept doing what I was doing, if I stayed involved in fitness to the extent that I had been, then I would have been maintaining, I would have been creating this space, maintaining a position at the the top of this, or you know, within the pantheon of top fitness pros, or of at least well-known fitness pros. And when you compare someone like Brett Contreras to me, you know, who over that same time period had probably penned another 200 articles, read God knows how many 
studies and during the period between, you know, when my book came out and like when I had this realization, had also gotten his PhD and he's like excited every day to read about biomechanics, then I don't deserve and it's not helpful for me to stay on that on a pedestal next to Brett on that same stage. And so me stepping back was an effort to create a vacuum so that other people could step in and lead the industry in a way that I was no longer interested in doing. I happened to have developed this other skill set in terms of business that I was then willing to teach. And that's why I made the transition into the Wellspring Society, my business mastermind, where I mentor tons of young fitness. It started with young fitness professionals, other fitness professionals. And now, you know, we have people who are productivity gurus. We have fashion bloggers. We have dating coaches. We have, uh, you know, everyone. Uh, you know, I have, I have jewelry owners, jewelry store owners, real estate people and people who own restaurants, all of, all of the stuff. And the focus on the Wellspring project, uh, the Wellspring Society was pretty significant from 2015 to 2018. And during that time, all of those people that I told you about, like, oh no, I'm a business coach now. And so the, that space began to get saturated. Yeah. And I think that if you focus on branding the way that I discussed earlier, then you never fear marketplace saturation. Yeah. There's no such thing as oversaturation of a marketplace if you are consistently pushing yourself out into the world because people either want to work with you or they don't. Uh, there are a couple of people who are like shopping around for masterminds and like, hey, like Roman, what do you, you know, what do you do that's different from what Vince Delmani does? I'm like, I don't know, like I'm not Canadian. This <laughs> is like, you know, and and it's. But it comes down to like, listen, we focus more on branding and writing than, you know, like funnels and aggressive sales. And there's nothing better about one or the other. So, yeah, there are there are like tactical dif dif uh, differences. But ultimately, it's like one is led by Vince. One is led by me. Who do you want to hang out with? And it's that simple. So but because that space kept getting saturated and there were so many opportunities for my potential client to find someone else, then the transition to writing was another philosophical decision because while we do things in a very specific way in the Wellspring Society and we help people build personality-driven, uh, content-driven, brand-based businesses that do seven figures as opposed to hyper-niche, you know, optimized funnel businesses that do seven figures, um, at the end of the day, like, if the, if the end result is there are two coaches, one um, and one client and both coaches can teach you to scale your business to seven figures, regardless of the modality, then if both people can provide that service, let's look a little deeper. There's a service I can provide that these other coaches can't, that these other mentors can't. And that's teaching writing because you know, like all of the people teaching online business, every single person currently teaching online <laughs> business learn has developed those skills over the past 15 years. That's really when we like came into this, uh, this internet marketing space. So at the, at the most, the, the most experienced person has a decade and a half of experience, but most of us who are, who are doing it well, just about eight or nine or 10 years, right? So if every single person has 10 years of experience and I weigh that against my 30 years of experience actively trying to become a better writer, I have an ethical and uh, an ethical obligation, but also like it's, it's good business to then teach this thing only I can teach. I mean, there's tons of great writers in the world and tons of people who can teach writing, just like no one in our space doing. 
And so that was where the Wellspring mentorship and, and the, the, write, the one-on-one writing coaching and the writing workshops started to spring up because if everyone can teach you how to make seven figures, um, but only one person is going to offer to teach you to write, then like, I'd love to be that person because now I can do something that is fulfilling to me and made sense philosophically and ethically. And so for me, it's more spiritually, psychologically, emotionally fulfilling to provide a service that for which there is a need that cannot be provided from most other people who in the society might be considered competitors. You're probably running out of time, aren't you, John? Not much. Uh, I've, got, I've got another 10 minutes or so. Okay, cool. So I was going to ask the one thing, just because the way you described it is essentially you're making fun of all this like seven figure bullshit on some of this stuff. But it's almost like it, you guys basically created a monster is what you're saying. Um, what's the expiration date on that? And kind of what's next? Because kind of what you're doing is seems to be kind of what's going to last a long time. How do you kind of convince other people of that way? You know what I mean? As opposed to just kind of saying all these things because... You basically developed the story, but that's really hard to mimic. And it, is, is there going to be something that that grows into as opposed to just straight up business coaching seven figures and everyone that kind of offshoots that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, you know, it's there's always the the fear of the bubble, right? Because within the context of fitness coaching, if everybody wants to continue to do well, we have to aggressively expand into other places to get more customers in because it's it, it's gotten to the point where if you look at the way that social media is and you look at <clears throat> where so many of the, uh, the the clients are or were um, – I don't, I don't want to say the well is dry, but I, I certainly think that the, the, the waters are muddy. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It seems to me, like looking around, I think there's it, – it's weird because when you look at it globally, like, yeah, the world's not running out of people who want to get in shape. But when you start looking at it, I'm like, God, it does seem that there are more online fitness coaches than people who might hire online fitness coaches. And then the same <laughs> thing will happen with the, the business coaching stuff. So um, – Things will continue to shift. If you're if you're asking me where I think they will go, yes. which seems to be the case, <laughs> I I don't fucking know, man. And it's not like I have stopped trying to do the work to figure that out. I think that what happens is a rising tide lifts all chips. I think that the more online fitness coaches there are talking about online fitness coaching, the more awareness of this service exists for the people who might need it. And it's become ubiquitous, which I think is helpful. When I was doing online fitness coaching in 2007, uh, I had to make two sales. First, I had to convince someone that, yes, it's possible that I'm going to help you. No, I'm not going to send next to you and count reps. We'll probably never meet. And then here's why you should work with me specifically. Now the first sale has been made. Every single person who is potentially applying for online coaching knows what the service is. Uh, the same thing will happen with business coaching. So, um, as the as the industry continues to broaden, I think that there are going to be more opportunities for individuals to deepen. And if you look at what I do with Wellspring, then really it's I'm helping people with a very specific area of growing their business where they're learning how to write effectively, tell stories so that they can stand out. Uh, there is, are probably other areas of that as well. You know, there are people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to teach you high ticket sales or, you know, let's, or wh whatever it is. So I think that'll niche down. Uh, that said, at some point, we hit critical mass and it's the happened. bubble bursts. 
the cream rises to the top. You're going to have to be great at a couple of things or you're just going to have to be the guy that – or the woman or the person, the non-binary, non, you know, whatever individual you are. You have to be the person that people want to spend time with. Goes back to that one thing we were talking about with the brand. I think it all that's all full circles. Essentially, you got to start working on branding yourself and working on other skills because again, the cream will rise at the top. And what happens if that bubble bursts? You need something. We are right. Our, you our, have to be able to provide something, and right. a lot of times that something is you know you're the one guy who the you're, if you're the one fitness coach who also goes to you know. Battlestar Galactica conventions, yep. then like, yeah, man, put that shit out there. Somebody is going to be like, dude, you're the guy I've been looking for. Who knows? Robbie Farlow's killed it on that sort of stuff. Robbie's <laughs> yeah, been on Robbie. our podcast too, right? We've had Joey, we've had Robbie, we've had Eric, like all, a lot of your Robbie's friends. Robbie's like waiting in line right now probably for one of those conventions. Yeah. Super, super nerdy. <laughs> yeah, makes all, it work. All of those guys came through the society. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I, as, as a, I think as a mentor, if you ever take more than like 2% credit for anyone's success, you're kind of a dick because, Agreed. you know, all you're doing is offering guidance and helping open doors. Uh, but what I think is, is interesting. So I'm not taking credit for them doing the things that help them stand out. But what I'm saying is that people, water tends to find its own level. And if all of the people that we just mentioned are kind of taking the, the, the approach that doing things that help them stand out is the business model, then I think that the reason they've all come through Wellspring is probably because in some level, on some level they had that deeper belief and that is what helped them feel connected to me. And then during the society, it just got fostered and encouraged and they gained maybe a little bit more confidence to start doing that. Let's really quickly get two things before we run out of time. One, I mean, we want to make sure everybody knows where to find you, online space, all your different, uh, the things that you're involved in. And um, what, like, you're talking about writing. I want to make sure I said this. Like, you know, I've read your stuff for years, uh, you know, the fitness and nutrition side of stuff. But especially now, I pay close attention for the writing side because writing is something I've been very interested in. And, you know, I've been getting more involved in, in articles. And by the time we all hear this, uh, my first article on T Nation. Shameless should, plug. Hey, go check it out. I'm really proud of this stuff. So hopefully they didn't can it before the uh, before it gets launched because we're recording this two weeks before you guys will hear it. Uh, but I mean that's something that's personally meaningful to me. So um, I was going to ask you if there is a book or books that you would recommend. We ask this of every guest, and and it could be something about writing or it could be anything that is personally meaningful to you. And then where to find you for everybody? Sure. Um, oh God. I, I mean, I recommend so many books. Like, I just think that, you know, if you, if you haven't read every word written by Hemingway, Vonnegut, <laughs> um, Sinclair, Rothfuss, Tolkien, um, you know, and these, these are just fiction authors. Um, God, you know, obviously Harry Potter, uh, if you haven't read the Horatio Hornblower series by C.S. Forrester, like, if you haven't made your way through like a lot of the classics, if you haven't made your way through a lot of the things that you hear people talk about, the great writers, then like stop asking for book recommendations and yeah. just do the damn thing. Like you just just pick up the books and start fucking reading them. Like I'm you know I'm not saying start with the brothers Karamazov and jump into into Dostoevsky, but you know the old man in the sea is like 130 pages. Just read it. And, you know, maybe you're a Hemingway guy and maybe you're not. Maybe, you know, Harry Potter is the thing. 
Uh, so for me, there are tons of books that are meaningful, tons of books that I, you know, to, I, 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 people ask me how many times I've read Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind. And my answer to that is I am sometimes not reading it. Because whenever I'm not reading something else, like, and I just need something to read to fall asleep, I just, I just pick up that book and I randomly turn to a page and it's like, it's like going home. It's falling into something so beautiful and meaningful to me that it's, it's, um, there's, it doesn't, you know, I have no idea how many times I've read it. I'm sometimes not reading it. I've, I've, I read the Lord of the Rings, the entire trilogy, uh, every single year, right around the holidays. I read through it. So starting right around, uh, early November and then I read it through December I, I, I'm someone who rereads books. I'm someone who, when I work, when I'm here writing, I have a movie on in the background, sometimes on mute. It's something that I've seen and watched so many times that it's lost meaning, but it's, it's existence is, is there playing and, and being burned into me. So, <clears throat> um, if you are interested in some of my recommendations, uh, just go to romanfitnesssystems.com slash writing, and it will redirect you to an Amazon list where there are all my recommendations for writing resources. Um, <clears throat> and then I it, honestly, if you want to see um, some of my favorite books, I guess just go to Goodreads. My name on Goodreads is John Romanello. That's my name on all of the other social accounts. Pump in your Goodreads. And, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not as uh, as diligent as adding things to it as I should be, but um, I highly recommend just scrolling through it and you know, you might find a genre you you didn't know that you liked. You know, that's something where you read Harry Potter and they're like, oh, I guess I like fantasy or young adult. Or you, you know, you read, um, I don't know, something by Stephen King. You're like, right, I like suspense or horror. Or you might read uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which is a fantastic book. And from there, you decide, like, I like cyberpunk. So there, you know, pick something from that list that I've to which I've given five stars and, and kind of go from there. And then, uh, I also highly recommend everybody take a minute and, uh, it's, it's the, it's the most important video on the internet. Take 20 minutes of your life and watch Neil Gaiman's commencement speech uh, at the university of the arts in 2012. If you go to my site, uh, that there, I, I actually just reposted the video of it with a little blurb, you know, a little, little, my analysis of it. Uh, and, but the title of the article is the most important video on the internet. And I, it's, it's 20 minutes and it's so tremendously directive and instructive and fulfilling and well done. And Neil Gaiman, he's, he's a British author of books like uh, American Gods and Stars, but he also has the, the most, you know, wonderful, like mellifluous, sonorous voice. Like listening to him is a pleasure. And uh, so I, those are the things I recommend. <clears throat> you know, the, the, the thing that I might write, you know, it's like, what book do you, that's so meaningful to you. If you start thinking, that might be something that you might only appreciate if you've laid the groundwork for being a lover of literature. So start with all the other shit. You know, I just, I think that if you have not read the things you like know you're supposed to read, <laughs> stop asking for recommendations. It's like, you know, when people are just like, Hey man, like I'm looking for what business book should I read? Like, well, I'm trying to learn how to be a better copywriter. Like, every fucking decent copywriter in the world is going to tell you to like read you know, um, the, the boron letters or, or, uh, you know, Gary Halbert, it, it's, we're all going to fucking say the same thing. Just so stop asking and just do it. <laughs> I like that answer. That, that's actually the most unique answer. Burn. It's like, we have fucking Google. Right. <laughs> You're I mean, just ruining. Like, we can't ask that question again. <laughs> it, it, it's terrible. I, I won't be able to ask her the same way. So now where do people find you, John? 
Uh, I live on the internet. I am also in New York City. If you're ever here, feel free to reach out to anybody. But um, the easiest way to get a hold of me is through the Instagram. Uh, I am at John Romanello, R-O-M-A-N-I-E-L-L-O. All of my social media handles are conveniently my name. That is also the URL to my site. So that is where you can find me. And on the gram, I post a lot of stuff about writing. Um, if anyone is wondering, the character limit for an Instagram caption is 2,200 characters. I know that because every post is 2,200 characters. And they start at much more than that, and I edit them down aggressively. So if you like reading reasonably long captions about writing or mental health or business and branding, uh, there is a lot of stuff there. Um, and then, you know, you just, the, the downside of that is you have to like, look at me, uh, look at smug and, and like making sexy eyes at the camera on my Instagram. So there's that. If you'd like to skip the sexy eyes, you could just go right to the website and a lot of that same stuff appears there. Again, as I said, you know, you're one of my favorite resources, especially when it comes to writing, but you're one of the few people I make a specific point of trying to make sure I consume your stories because getting everybody's is really hard. Uh, anyone listening who's finding us for the first time, um, go check out some of our other stuff. We've had Eric Bach, Joey Persia, uh, Robbie Farlow, some people that John connect to, Dean Somerset's done a bunch of episodes. And see if you like it, and maybe you'll stick around. And for everybody who's fighting John for the first time, if you've never heard of him, my sweet motherfucking God, like go and follow something he does because he's been very influential to me personally for a long time. And uh, again, like, I'm getting published on a site like T Nation, and John has in no small way influenced that by consuming what he's been writing for a long time. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, guys, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, John, for appearing. This is a, a real treat. And uh, we'll chat off air for a sec. Thanks for having me. Shut up and sit down.